Hey, baseball fans, this is Derek Van Riper. Now that spring training games are underway, opening day is just a few weeks away. Eno Saris and I have been getting ready for the season all winter on Rates and Barrels. Whether you're a seasoned fantasy player, a baseball stats junkie, or just someone who wants to learn more about the game, join us for four episodes each week this season, including our new Friday live stream with former big leaguer Trevor May. Check out the live stream on Fridays at 1 o'clock Eastern on the Rates and Barrels YouTube channel, or listen to the show wherever you enjoy your podcasts, including the ad-free option on the Athletic app. This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show for Friday, April 14th. Derek Van Riper here with Steven Nesbitt, Keith Law, traveling on the road, watching players, doing all sorts of things that are, are not recording this podcast, which is too bad because there are some fun facts about this 13-0 start for the Tampa Bay Rays that I think actually reach back into Keith's childhood. So we'll get into that uh, over the course of the next hour or so. Steven, glad to have you back. <laughs> Happy to be back. Knock off Keith Law here. Uh, yeah, reaching back into my childhood was uh, the, the, some horrible Tigers days. So that was uh, actually not, not too, too far from what the horrible Devil Rays days were. And they have turned things around since the name change. And wow, this is, uh, this is about as good as it's ever gotten. Yeah, absolutely. 13-0 as they enter play on Friday. The bad news for the Rays, rotation injuries are really piling up. Of course, they entered this season with Tyler Glasnow on the IL due to an oblique injury. Uh, in the time since then, just in this week, Zach Eflin has gone on the IL, and we've had Jeffrey Springs suffer an injury that will likely put him there. At this time of this recording, anyway, he's not technically there, but ulnar neuritis sounds like something that's going to cost him some time. I saw Inside Injuries, they do a lot of great work for our fantasy side, just explaining what some of these diagnoses, diagnoses mean. They said it's almost certain that he's going to be out for a little while, so... We saw Taj Bradley debut. We saw some of that pitching depth. But as these injuries start to pile up, how well suited do you think the Rays are to withstand multiple starters being down at the same time? Yeah, I feel like we're already starting to turn the corner from like the Cinderella start of a great team. So not really Cinderella isn't fair, but all the focus being on how many games can you win to how sustainable is this uh, in a packed division? Uh, because you're right, you're you're losing... Uh, Eflin, Glass down. You already have Shane Boz down. And now to have Jeffrey Springs go on, to, uh, they deserve so much credit for the rotation they have put together. But now it's already being decimated. The Springs injury uh, likely going to be something at least, uh, you know, uh, medium serious. You know, talking to people in the organization, it's like we have to wait just 48 hours really to see uh, what's going to happen here. What kind of inflammation does he have? What kind of feeling does he have? And and then figure things out. So that could go a lot of different directions and, and hopefully not too serious, but they do have far better depth than most teams uh, to withstand this. Uh, we, we had all the excitement last year uh, fueled by our good friend, Eno Saris, uh, about Luis Patino. He still exists. He's still around. Tyler Glass now will be back uh, before too long. Todd Bradley is a guy who is ready for the major leagues, uh, maybe not ready to step into a pennant race right now, um, but I think there are going to be opportunities for him uh, Yanni Chirinos is out there as well. So I do think they actually are pretty well suited to handle this, but uh, it doesn't hurt to give yourself a, what, a 13-game head start as you head into the middle of April when you need to figure some of the stuff out and maybe not resort to openers, but resort to maybe the seven, eight, nine options that you had entering the season. 
Yeah, Red Sox are on the schedule, of course, right now. That series already is underway. The schedule to this point has been very kind to the Rays, but even when you play bad teams, the expectation is usually you're going to take two of three. You're not necessarily going to sweep everybody. So they're really doing a lot to put themselves in a better position in the AL East battle by taking care of business against some of the bottom teams in the league right now. Uh, we saw that Bradley debut earlier this week. He was optioned back to Durham after that start. That was before the Springs injury. So if they were to make a move with Springs or some other injured player, they can bring Bradley back quicker to fill a rotation spot. He really popped in Eno's pitching model, by the way, which it makes sense. Just Taj Bradley's been one of the better pitching prospects in the minor leagues for a couple of seasons now. Uh, I, I think the polish is there. But the other thing that the Rays continually do well, Stephen, I think they they put guys in a position to succeed. I think that kind of overarches different things they do. The use of the opener, uh, being, I think, more aware of the third time through the order penalty a few years ago than a lot of other teams were. Different things they do that are, are likely to make Taj Bradley as effective as he can be from the jump, even if he's not a six or seven inning starter on a regular basis for them. They don't necessarily need that because they've got bullpen depth. They always seem to have bullpen depth. So I do think we're going to see a little more Taj Bradley than we were expecting to see as a result of this kind of flurry of recent injuries. But of this entire group, of the pleasant surprises on this team, who are you buying into the most to sustain their early improvements? And I think it's a fair question just because of the quality of the opponents in those first three series. If you beat up on some bad teams, teams of bad pitching, and you have a bunch of guys who usually strike out 25 or 30% of the time that strike out 15% of the time for a few weeks, it leads you to some questions. Is there skills improvement? Is it just strength of schedule? Is it a little of both? So I'm just curious, moving past guys like Wander and, and Brandon Lau, who's healthy and performing again, who are some of the secondary players on this Rays team that you're actually buying into a fast start from? Yeah, I, Lau, Rosarena, and Franco, like those are the guys who most baseball fans probably could have named. And beyond that, no one's picking Luke Rayleigh. Uh, probably, you know, Isaac Paredes probably wasn't going to get named by anybody. Uh, Manny Margot, Yandy Diaz. These are Harold Ramirez, who Clint Hurdle once called the bone collector because he just singled all the time in, in spring <laughs> training in Pittsburgh. So they are certainly not household names, but this is an offense that top to bottom has hit. I, I was finding the, the best comp for the numbers they have so far in the slash line for the whole team is 287, 364, 576 for a 940 OPS. That, my friends, is 2012 Josh Hamilton, 285, 354, 577 for a 930 OPS. In fact, they're actually better than him by a couple ticks there. Yeah, fifth place MVP. So that's that's the level we're talking about. This lineup one through nine hitting uh, everyone except Christian Bentoncourt among the regulars have multiple homers. Uh, this is not a stealing team. They are just generating runs. Um, in every facet possible, I was looking at what what areas do they lead the lead the league and the whole majors, and it's runners in square position, two outs, two scrits, ahead in the count, even count, full count. Literally, the only thing they were their middle of the pack is when they're behind in the count. They're uh, they're an average team, so I guess that's the key. They get get ahead with strikes, but also on the first pitch, uh, they are doing. Uh, there's a 1.7 OPS on first pitch contact. So good luck throwing first pitch strikes. So back to your actual question, the guy that I would pick that actually, I think I would pick to be the one who sustains a lot of this is probably Paredes. He's had um, a decent amount of opportunity. Of course, he came over from Detroit at the start of last season in the um, Austin Meadows trade. Um, and he's a guy who I think has a combination of average OBP and power that they have at times lacked and, and certainly not right now that everyone's providing that. 
But if you look at some of the rest of season projections for him, he's a guy who will give you a solid OBP, okay average, and then like 20 homers rest of season. I mean, that's that's valuable in an offense that right now is hitting the cover off the ball, but really we aren't, we aren't expecting them to lead the, the majors and homers this season. Uh, if you can get that bat behind uh, Franco, Rosarena, and, and Lau, uh, I think it's a really valuable player and a guy who I think can play an important corner spot for them where in the past they've been using, you know, they, they still have Yandy Diaz at first base who is a fully a contact hitter um, and OBP play, but uh, he's my he's my pick. Where do you go in that lineup? Yeah, I'm a Paredes believer too. I, I liked him even before the Tigers traded him, and once the Rays <laughs> traded for him, I just felt validated as someone trying to find someone on the verge of a breakout. I was like, hey, if the Rays see something, I was on the right track, and it played out a bit last year. We saw in the role that he had, Isak Paredes hit 20 homers in just 381 plate appearances. He'll likely play more than that this year. I think because he did it with a, a bit of an ugly slash line, it was a 205, 304, 435 line with the 20 homers. Really odd combination that kept people from really jumping on board and, and buying into what he did. But you look at the, the way he controls the strike zone. Uh, we saw a pretty good hard hit rate last year. If all of those things come together and he's hitting the ball in the air as often as he is right now, there's another level. There's a 30 home run season there with the right amount of playing time. They can move him around. They play him at about three different infield spots. So just a really kind of typical raise find. A guy they got for relatively very little in a trade who ends up having a pretty prominent role for them. I actually think the start for Yandy Diaz has me second-guessing some things. I thought I had him completely figured out. I think yeah. it's fair after <laughs> you know six years in the big leagues. He's, he's the strongest-looking human I've ever seen on a baseball field who really doesn't hit a lot of home runs. He hits some but not a lot. 43 in his career in 1,932 plate appearances. But if you look at Yandy Diaz, specifically, if you look at Yandy Diaz's biceps, <laughs> it doesn't make sense. He's he's like a kind of a classic 80s line drive sort of hitter. We are seeing Yandy Diaz lift the ball more early on. And I can't say that 11 games with 49 plate appearances is enough to say he is say he's changed something for good. He's a guy that's going to hit the ball in the air a third of the time instead of hitting it on the ground. Or hitting the ball in the air two-thirds of the time instead of hitting it on the air a third of the time. That's the shift that he's made so far. That is not likely going to stick. But even if he has made some improvements from where he's been throughout his career, he's another guy that will get to a lot more power. Interesting, too, he got a contract extension. That three-year, $24 million contract extension that Yadi Diaz got with from the Rays, it didn't make big headlines at the time, but clearly they wanted to keep him around. They saw something there that they really wanted to believe in, and they wanted to have some cost certainty. So uh, I don't know. I, I think he's he's kind of like I'm keeping a close eye on him. And then Josh Lowe, I think because Josh Lowe for a few years has been a power and speed guy at AAA with my fantasy background, I've been waiting for an opportunity for him. He's been more of an up and down guy the last two seasons. It looks like he finally has a prominent role. What we're seeing from him is a significantly improved strikeout rate, much like the Yandy Diaz approach, hitting the ball in the air more often. It's too small of a sample to know how real it is, but it's a big step in the right direction. If you're Josh Lowe, even if you knock that K rate down to 27, 28%, he walks enough, hits the ball hard enough, plays decent defense, and he can steal some bases, that's going to play. So I think Josh Lowe is probably the guy that I really am the most intrigued by out of that, that next wave. I think with Yandi, I was just too much of a coward to pick him as my as the one I think it's it's real for the rest of the year. He you mentioned that he's he has the whole package. I'm 
remember talking a couple of years ago to someone in the organization who just says like, he is the most perplexing case because if we could just get him to stop like pounding the ball into the ground, um, he could be an incredible like MVP type talent. He had, I think he got a couple MVP votes last year, maybe just one, but it's uh, it's on the baseball reference page, so it counts. But he's got max exit VLO, that, that's real. He's got uh, an incredible contact ability. He's got the one of the best eyes in the game where we're talking about a guy who will get you like a 10% strikeout rate in a 14 up to 16% walk rate. Uh, one of the rare guys in the league who can and who can pull the more walks than strikeouts thing over the course of a whole year. But if you're if you're just pounding the ball into the dirt, you're not that valuable. He's a leadoff hitter for them who looks like a four hitter. Um, and it didn't look like, you're right, that contract extension, it didn't look like a, a super Raisian move for them to commit their first base spot for the long term to a guy who doesn't hit for power. He's never hit more than I think maybe a dozen or 15 homers and doesn't really give you that many. He doesn't really give you a lot of um, suggestion that he's going to hit more uh, other than the eye test. And so what he's shown so far is that he can. He can barrel balls. He's putting up a, a barrel rate not even close to anything he's ever done before at 16.7%. Um, his average exit VLO is higher than it's ever been. But this is a super, super small sample and so, I, like I said, too much of a coward to say it's going to stick. But if it does, I mean, what a valuable player for them. Um, a guy who can hold down first base, but also can be an anchor in a lineup that has a lot of different profiles now. Um, a bunch of different profiles, especially if you get, 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 out, get a guy like him lifting the ball, get Paredes lifting the ball. Then you got a real mix of contact, uh, some lift, some speed with a Rosarena. Um, man, it's, it's exciting what they're putting together there and sort of didn't see it coming. So they've actually just wrapped their series with the Red Sox. I think I suggested that might be a four-game series going into the weekend. They have the Jays on the road. Very tough test for them for this three-game set. Friday night, it's Drew Rasmussen going up against Jose Barrios. Barrios has just not been the same guy that he was pre-2022 in a long time. He just doesn't look right. That's a pitching matchup that does favor the Rays in a pretty big way. You look at the matchup possibly on Saturday. It looks like it's Josh Fleming against Yusei Kikuchi. And they got the ace Shane McClanahan going up against Alec Manoa for the final game of that series on Sunday. Do the Rays make it through the weekend unscathed? Are they 16-0 come Monday? They certainly are the favorites in each one of those. Um, you know, Kikuchi has had a, had a nice first uh, first trip out, but is certainly liable to, to blow up at any moment. And uh, in that first one, of course, Barrios is in a similar position. I just... Uh, see a lot of ways for the Rays to get to him. So Toronto has, of course, much more of a punch than the last four teams that the, the Rays have played, but we're beyond the point where we, we can question their schedule too much. You're right. You go into the series hoping to win the series, and if they had, if they had won each of the first four series, we'd still be raving about what they're doing so far, uh, keeping pace with the Yankees and at the top of the league. But what they've done so far is put themselves in a position where we are looking ahead of the schedule and saying, when, when, when are they going to drop a game? And it's going to happen. Baseball happens. But, uh, but uh, I think I, I think conservatively, I'll guess they win two out of three. I think they have this series in hand, especially with McClanahan going in the in the Sunday game. But uh, it's not hard to see a scenario where they walk out of this one with uh, what are we talking sixteen straight? I hope that's the case. I, I want to see some history. It's been a long time. Now we're looking at the St. Louis Maroons. That's the team of Keith's childhood. Eighteen eighty four was the year that that team went ninety four and nineteen. And they started 20-0. So that's the amazing baseball history, like the team that you're reaching for if you're the Rays. If you're going to do that, you got to sweep the Jays on the road for three. 
They go on the road to Cincinnati for three to begin next week. That's very doable. That's a, a lower-end team that you can beat up on. That put them at 19-0. The game that would actually come down to would be the second game of a series at home against the White Sox. If the schedule were to hold, that would be a Shane McClanahan start. So it could happen. It probably won't happen. <laughs> I, th- I think they're going to get one more. I think they're going to lose on Saturday. I think it's going to be 14-0 before that streak is broken, which is an incredible start, as we said before. Uh, and Steven, I'll give you a prize if you can name one member of the 1884 St. Louis Maroons. Uh, uh, I, have no, I have no chance. Um, old Hoss Johnson. <laughs> well, nope. No Old Hoss Johnson. I think the, the secret, if you're going to go back to the 1800s and, and try to name players. Jack? Just use, Jack something? Jack is always a good one. There's Jack Gleason and a Jack Brennan. It's two Jacks. Mm. Or use the name of a horse. Buttercup <laughs> Dickerson. Yes. Was an outfielder Buttercup. on that team. Yeah, yep. my dad Bottom had his card. Dickerson. Wow. Wow. That's special. Yeah, it really is. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight? Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply. Moving on to some other things going on around the league. Brian Reynolds, we talked about the Pirates a little bit on the 3-0 show earlier this week, and Brian Reynolds didn't even get a mention, which is unfair because he's basically been, I would say, the rays of individual player performances so far. He's been on fire to start this season. I guess Ryan Mountcastle probably has a claim to that as well, but Brian Reynolds is hitting 340 so far, five homers, 14 RBIs, K rate under 10%, one of the very best hitters in the league right now. And it sounds like he may actually end up signing an extension with the Pirates, Steven. This seemed impossible over the course of this offseason. Yeah, it did. If you if you were paying attention this this winter, I think it was in December, he requested a trade is how it's been worded the whole winter. So maybe it wasn't so much a demand as a polite request. But they you know, apparently, reportedly, according to our Rob Beer Temple and other uh, reporters in Pittsburgh, got very, very close to signing a deal on opening day, had an offer they had agreed upon the financials on, <clears throat> which was eight years and $106.75 million, um, which sounds very light, but you'd have to understand the situation um, of why that comes off so team-friendly, and it's still going to come off team-friendly, even if you understand the context. But the context of that is that he has three years of arbitration left. He's a Super 2 guy, is in his first year, or had his first year of arbitration. This is his second. He has two more after this. So the Pirates have him under team control through 2025. And if you kind of just add up what the numbers are going to come to with, based on comps and that sort of thing, he's making 6.75, which is where that funny math comes to uh, this year. In the next two years, he's going to make roughly $30 million total. And so the contract he is air quotes locked into right now, if you count what what arbitration gives you, is going to be about uh, three years and 36.75 million if we're doing some some rough math. And so if you take that off of the what the Pirates current offer is, you're, and when you just look at like what the free agent were, uh, years would be valued at, you're talking about a five-year deal for $70 million, which comes out to $14 million, where if we're talking about one of the best players in baseball right now, which he is for the first few weeks of the season, along with the injured Adam Duvall and um, Ryan Mountcastle, then $14 million is really, 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 really light. Um, 
it's basically Andrew Benintendi uh, money. He got Benintendi got 15 million uh, in the White Sox for five years and pretty average left fielder. Uh, Mitch Hanniger got 14 and a half AAV over three years. So we're talking about a longer deal, of course. But um, the hang up here, if you haven't heard, is that Reynolds camp allegedly at the last minute uh, said, oh, we want an opt out, by the way. The opt out would come and fall after the 2026 season. So if you remember, I said those three years are already locked in because arbitration that would give them the Pirates just one year of his uh, of his free agent years. And so the Pirates immediately balked at that. They've backed off of it. There's been no real public uh, reporting of substantive discussion since then. So here we sit. They agree on the terms, but don't agree on the opt out where I think it's kind of false at this point to say you you know have a deal in place if the thing you're arguing about is an opt out it's a that's a massive thing right the pirates have never given out, given out an opt out and what an opt out would allow him to do is you get to 2026 and he plays for one free agent year at 14 million dollars but then has the opportunity to say either hey you guys aren't heading the direction that I want or I can make way more money uh, on the open market so I'm going to opt out of, uh, and 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 hit free agency and so Sticking point, the Pirates have have, have uh, given no indication they're willing to back down from. Maybe they could push that back a year or, or something like that, but they have uh, so far not done that. And it, it's led to some interesting discussions, I think, in the baseball universe uh, on a couple different levels. One of them is, um, well, well, if they uh, you know got if they agreed on the money, why are we why are we throwing this opt out in the last minute? And I think there's no way we can say they agreed on the money if this is on the table whatsoever, because the only reason you'd be taking such a below market deal is if you're will if you think you have an out and if you're the pirates and you're offering somebody who's worth 20 something million plus per year if you give his comps it's more more like George Springer and Brandon Nimmo are the type of, of comps you're going to get and they both made over 20 million dollars AAV and free agency and so it's an extension it's a little bit different but um they are in a situation here where uh, Reynolds is worth more than the money currently agreed to. And so he wants an opt-out to give himself an opportunity. Uh, and the Pirates are saying, we don't really know if we want to take on the risk of this. Because A, on one hand, uh, we'd only get what you want for one extra year than we already have you. And it would complicate things if we want to trade you. Then it makes things more difficult because the team is accepting whatever our contract we signed and that you have an opt-out. Um, and it could leave us in a, in a bad spot. And if you get injured or are not good, we're still having to pay you because you're, you're going to opt in for the rest of that contract. And so um, from Reynolds' perspective, I don't know really why it would make sense to accept a deal that this is this low, uh, below market value. And from the Pirates' perspective, I understand that when you are looking from a team side at signing a long-term extension to someone who's still under um, control for, for three more years, you want to do that because you think there's a decent chance you get a really, really good deal out of it. Pirates mm-hmm. did this with Starling Marte. They did it with Andrew McCutcheon. They tried to do it with Gregory Polanco and Jose Tabata. Two of those four worked out. <laughs> and they, they ended up getting enough surplus value to make it worth it. And so um, they're in a situation where I think extensions are attractive to them if it could, if there's a good chance it turns into a really, really good deal for the team. And an opt-out really puts a cap on that, right? It puts a ceiling on how much um, benefit and surplus value they're going to get because if he opts out, you just don't end up getting all of that. So there are ways to get creative here and we can talk through some of the mechanics of opt-outs and what's going on around the league. Uh, but right now it just seems like it's a hard stop. Reynolds camp says we want, um, we want an opt-out. The pirates say we have no interest in talking about an opt-out and, 
Um, I, I can see from both sides why we th hit this impasse, and I don't know really any way through it other than being flexible on when the opt-out falls, so push it back a year maybe, or the pirate saying, hey, we don't want to do opt-outs, so we're not going to talk about opt-outs, we'll give you more money instead. That's the way to, to do it, right? Reynolds Camp originally was asking for reportedly, um, I think it was eight years and $135 million in, the, in, in that ballpark, and um, that's more of a, it's like a 16.875 million dollar AAV. But if you carve out the the money they already talked about, the 35 million, you're basically looking at five um, five years over 100 million. That's 20 million a year. That's that's much more in line with what his market, his market value would be. So um, I think there are ways to get around it, but uh, it doesn't seem right now like either side is willing to budge off of where they stand. Yeah, Reynolds, I, I think, is a really good example of a player that. <laughs> The, the way service time works really works against him. He's a college guy. Guys that went to college, they get to the big leagues, they hit free agency at a much more advanced age. By the time they hit free agency, their chances of cashing in at the highest level are significantly reduced. That's just the way aging curves work, the way the contracts go. And I fully understand, if you're Brian Reynolds and you play for a team that's been in the bottom five in payroll six consecutive seasons and in its entire... Jeez, I would say like the last 20 years, the history of Cots contracts has cracked cracked the top 20 twice, three times. They, they've been 20th twice and they've been 19th once since 2000 in payroll. You kind of want some insur assurances that your career isn't going to be playing a lot of meaningless baseball. So I can totally understand why he would want that. I understand why any player would want that because they have so little control over how much they can make and where they play when the career begins, that by the time you get to the point where teams are even talking to you about staying for a while, you just want to make sure it's a good long-term fit that maxes out your own possible earnings. Exactly what an opt-out does. I think the creative contracts are good. I think it, it actually gives a team like the Pirates a better chance of keeping Brian Reynolds. If we get to the point where teams say, oh, we're not going to do this anymore, that's bad. That's a competitive disadvantage for some teams. Like, I think about... You know, Manny Machado has had opt-outs. Uh, Carlos Correa's contract with the Twins. Without the flexibility of opt-outs, was Carlos Correa ever going to go to the Twins last winter? Of course, I know the complications with his ankle and long-term health, of course, that has enabled him to go back on a longer deal. That's also a flexible deal. But this is a good thing for the game overall. It's, yes, technically teams giving up some control, giving something to the players, but ultimately... I think this is a, a, a thing that makes the transactions that we get excited about, players moving around, more fun because it puts more teams in play for players they otherwise wouldn't be able to go get. Contracts like this are inherently about a give and take. And the closer a guy is a free agency, the more give we see from teams. And so I understand why there's a hard line from a team like the Pirates saying, we're not going to just hand out no trade clauses, which I don't think they've really ever done. We're not going to hand out an opt-out. Um, they're going to you know, put a foot down and they're only, again, going to look to sign a deal that they really, really like and think would be really, really beneficial for them. But the opt-outs are an interesting conversation as you're, as you're saying, because it is one way for the player to get back a little bit of this leverage. Um, so what, what sparked some of this was a, was a story this week that we had on the site uh, from Jim Bowden, who talked to some um, executives who basically said they're, they're not, they hope this trend of opt-outs goes away. Uh, they don't like seeing it. They think it's kind of a dangerous, you know, uh, precedent to be setting, uh, to be giving players these opt-outs. And 
I get, you know, it's kind of the, there are not that many. We'll get into this in a second. There are not that many. And I guess that's what makes it a trend as you start to see them and uh, executives start talking. Um, I get why they don't want it. I, opt-outs are not great for a team, right? The player gets to choose um, at that point if he's going to go somewhere um, or stick around and also gives him a second chance to negotiate. That's what we saw with Manny Machado, right? He was coming up on his on his um, extension, uh, his opt-out year and said, hey, let's talk. I'm probably going to be opting out after this year. And they gave the Padres a chance to give him a whole heck of a lot more money and keep him there for the rest of his baseball career. But I think you could also turn around and make the opposite um, argument that, well, player agents say that they don't like uh, club options, right? That's not great for the player. It's a team getting, getting to decide, well, we don't really like the contract. We've the full length of the contract. So we're not going to give you that possibility of, uh, you know, whatever the 12 million we offered you for 2028. We're actually going to buy that out for a million dollars. We all knew it was, it was in, in, in the contract, just like an opt-out would be. We know it's possible. Um, but uh, I think a lot of players got hosed over the years by agreeing to some club options that ended up not being good for them. They played for well below market. And so that's the give and take, right? One side's not going to like this. The other side has something it might try to get creative with and it, they don't like that. Um, and so sparked by that conversation, the the story that, that Jim wrote, I was looking into like how, how many of these opt-outs do we actually have and what, what kind of form are they actually taking? And the the bottom line is I only counted, again, Cots contracts went through every team page <laughs> and just searched opt-out. So this may be not perfect numbers, but should be close. I only found 19 uh, active opt-outs. Uh, so active contracts that include an opt-out. And so some of those are this year, some of those are in 2028, you know. Um, and if you consider that there are, you know, roughly 1,200 guys on 40-man rosters right now, we're talking about, you know, 1.6% of those. So this is not a large trend, even though it is a little bit of a trend. And you kind of see it happening in bunches. There are some teams uh, doing it more than others. I saw multiple Cubs, multiple Giants, multiple Rockies. Um, and there's some, you know, notable ones. There are Garrett Cole has an opt-out at the end of 2024. However, their creative counterpunch to that is if he exercises that opt-out, the Yankees can void that by adding a 10th year at $36 million. Good for him, good for them, right? And so he might do that. If he's pitching great, he might say, I'm going to opt out of this contract. And the Yankees have to decide, okay, do we let him opt out of this and go to the market? Or do we want to keep one of the best pitchers of baseball and give him $36 million in 2029? Cool. That's an interesting thing. I, I find that a fascinating decision to have to make. I think I know which way they'll go. Trevor Story is an opt-out, but Boston can negate it by exercising... uh, Sorry, it's after 25. Uh, They can exercise his 2028. I also think that one's going to go the opposite way of the Cole discussion. And then there are just straight-up ones, right? Jose Barrios has has one. Josh Bell, Javi Baez, Robbie Ray, Jorge Soler, Max Scherzer. Um, And then you you add a third wrinkle. It's ones that are kind of with qualifiers on them. Um, Kodai Senga can opt out after 25 if he pitches 400 innings in the next three seasons combined. Uh, Drew Smiley can opt out if he throws 100 innings this season. Trey Mancini can opt out if he has 350 plate appearances. So, you know, tied to these um, these stats and numbers um, gives a guy a chance to, hey, you can opt out basically if you give us a good, a good year here, a good full season. And uh, a third version of that is the Rockies have done some interesting things. Kyle Freeland can opt out after 24 if he finishes top five in Cy Young, either the next three, uh, <laughs> last year, this year, or next year. Ryan oh. McMahon can opt. <laughs> I know a Rockies player getting top five. It's a uh, Cy Young. On. It's it's rough. That's just uh, mean. <laughs> <laughs> why, and Ryan why would McMahon, you do that? Ryan McMahon has a couple opt outs. 
if he finishes top five MVP in uh, any of the next uh, handful of year, basically. He has two opt-outs. And so I think there's a great, interesting ways to to navigate this. But the bunches I mentioned, the Cubs have Stroman, Drew Smiley, Trey Mancini, and Tucker Barna all have some form of an opt-out. Uh, the Rockies, you had Freeland McMahon, both like creative opt-outs. And the Giants have uh, Conforto, Sean Manaya, Ross Stripling, and um, uh, Mitch Hanniger all have opt-outs in the next, uh, either this year or next year. And that's a way, just like you said with Correa and um, and the Twins, it's a way for a team to, to sweeten their offer. And so when we talk about it in the Brian Reynolds conversation, it's not really a sweetener to the Pirates. They're not trying to sweeten what they're giving him because they have him for three more years. You don't know how he'll be in those three three years. You don't know if by the time you hit the free agent years that are currently being valued at $14 million, if he's going to be way better than that or just about that or even less valuable if he ends up having you know some catastrophic injury or something or just underperformance. And so it's easier for teams to do this when they're saying, hey, let me give you two years and $32 million and I'll add an opt-out after the first year. That's essentially, I think, what the Josh Bell um, contract is. But it's something, it's a, it's a way you can give the player a bit of a decision point in the middle there. And if they outperform it, then you say, great. We we had a guy for a year where he did so well that he's opting out because he's overvalued. Uh, 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 he's undervalued by this current contract. And um, I don't have a... I don't have a problem with that. I don't think it ruins baseball. Uh, and I, but I understand that if you look at some of these, some of the the teams that are doing this, and you look around the league, you might say as a as a GM, oh, I don't really like that they're doing this. This is uh, the 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 way things were going before, where I signed a guy for um, what was the Andrew McCutcheon contract, like uh, seven years, fifty one million, a couple of club options in there, uh, was a lot better for us, right? We kind of held all the power there, and if he turned into a, an MVP like he did, then all that surplus value goes to us, and we don't have to pay him anymore. And uh, and that's okay. And that from the player perspective, I was just talking to Andrew McCutcheon about this the other day. Uh, he's across the clubhouse from Brian Reynolds, and I wanted to ask him about his situation. He signed it before he was even in arbitration, so the money certainly wasn't as big. Um, he would have made uh, 200 plus million in free agency had he hit free agency on time. He was a top five, top three, I think, MVP guy for four consecutive years, if I have those numbers right. But he was in the MVP conversation for... Um, for all the years leading up to his to his uh, would-be free agency, top five for four years in a row. And instead, he'd, he'd signed a below market deal and he never got that huge payday. Again, huge is relative, not the average person's huge. Um, he still got paid really, really, really nicely and has had a good career. But, um, you know, these are decisions players have to make. And I think a guy asking for an opt-out isn't outrageous. It isn't an outrageous thing. It just happens to ding the the amount of surplus value a team can get. And that's an important thing for a, a team like the Pirates. Right. I mean, I think the the bigger thing that the players ultimately are going to want in the long run, I don't know how many CBA negotiations you and I are going to have to to go through in our lives before it happens. It, it's a shorter path to free agency because the team-friendly contracts that some of the most exciting young players sign happen because they're four, five, six years away from free agency. So you get guys that sign a deal for $100 million, $150 million, which again, yeah, to regular people like us, life-changing money, relative to what they'd get within the game, though, it's a fraction of what they would earn if they're able to hit the open market a lot sooner. I think that's ultimately the long, long-term direction we're heading in. I don't know if it's the next CBA, the one after that, or the one after that, but I think we're going to see change eventually on this front because the best players in baseball are in that window for the most part. Most of those players fall in that uh, zero to six years of service time range. Let's move on to some other things happening over the course of these first few weeks. You pointed this out to me before we started recording. It seems like the excitement around Shohei Otani 
has sort of fizzled after the WBC, which the stage for the WBC is totally different than the first couple of weeks of games. Uh, but of course, Shohei Otani off to a great start again. And the thing that continues to amaze me, Stephen, is that Shohei Otani, as a pitcher, when we saw what he was doing at the beginning of his career, it was very good. It was kind of like number two starter stuff with, it was like number one starter stuff with number three starter command. So you're kind of like, yeah, he's he's basically an ace, but not quite an ace because of the way they use him. He's right on that borderline. And I thought that's as good as he'd ever be. And every year we've seen him pitch, with the exception of the, the pandemic-shortened 2020 season, he's taken a step forward. He's shown us something more. On the mound, he's off to another great start. The walk rate's up a little bit. But a .47 ERA and a .95 whip through three starts for Shohei Otani. The Ks are there. The Velo's still good. Everything continues to click for him on the mound. And I think that's the part of his evolution and development as a player that I somehow underestimated at the beginning. At the plate, doing typical Shohei Otani things. 300-404-575 line. This is a once-in-a-lifetime player. I don't know how many times we have to say it, how many times it has to be written, but we will never see another player like him. And it should be must-see TV on a daily basis. Whenever the Angels are on, get on your MLB TV account, you watch the Angels. That's the way it should be. And yet, I feel like I'm still falling back into my typical pattern, much like I did for Mike Trout's career to this point, where it's a lot of highlights and not a lot of live viewing. And I think it's even more of a crime with Otani because of the way he does it. There were smart people who thought it was ridiculous that they were letting him continue to do long term both, you know, uh, both two way things. And 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 the pitching is the one that's going to fall by the wayside because if you guy have a guy who can play every every day and hit you, you know, thirty five homers and be your cleanup hitter, even if it's DH, which is not a valuable position, um, you know, war wise. Uh, you're going to take that over a guy who's, I mean, it looked like early on, what is he going to make? 20 starts a year and maybe give you 100 innings? Um, good, but why not make him the closer, right? That was part of the conversation early on. You can make him the closer. You'll have 50 good innings out of him. You'll have your closer position sewn up and he can play the field the rest of the game. And now, like looking back at that now, I was like, wait, what a what a travesty if they'd actually listened to us, right? <laughs> how, how horrible would that have been uh, robbing us of that? Because not only is it the highlights, right? Not, not only is it the 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 guy who can hit the ball farther than basically anybody in baseball or the guy who can throw almost as hard as anybody in baseball but he's a legitimate number one starter right now who is going to give you uh close to 30 starts even if they're spacing them out a little bit maybe you're going to end up like 28 like he did last year but 166 innings last year that's good those are good numbers those are the type of numbers that got Marcus Stroman as qualifier in his uh in his opt out if he hits 160 innings so like those are real starting pitcher numbers and dominant stuff, dominant stuff, even if he has, you know, in imperfect control and, and command at times, um, this is a guy who's who's changing the game on uh, on two sides of it. And uh, there's that is not something to be to be overlooked. Right. The in the in the height of the uh, of the WBC uh, in spring training, I I uh, sort of impulse bought tickets to a Red Sox game when the Angels are coming in town. Uh, we, we have two kids a two-year-old and a six-month-old and i was like wait we have to go to our first game uh luke the older ones is old enough to kind of enjoy it we've been singing take me out to the ball game non-stop raffi is kind of a banger version of that and so we uh i thought like how cool would be able to be able to say your first game was mike trout and shohei otani at fenway park and so we're going on sunday it's gonna be 
a blast and also rainy and we'll see how it actually goes and if we see some of the game but Shohei is that kind of guy where I have not had a chance to, to watch him live yet and I'm like I'm 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 fired up just as a as a baseball fan and a baseball writer to see it and uh also to take you know a couple grandparents with us and to take my wife and kids like it's it's that special uh the the I wouldn't call what the Angels have going a, a special team but two special players where uh it's like with my you know my father-in-law showing me his like Mickey Mantle cards, right? And these these like old Yankee cards he had, and uh, up he keeps up in his office, and it's so special to to him. Even though he's not a huge baseball fan, he can say like I got to watch some of these guys play, and uh, I think kids are gonna grow up these days saying I got to watch Shohei at the height of his powers, and I got to watch Mike Trout. And honestly, like Angels, do whatever you want. This guy's probably gonna end up going somewhere somewhere else next year, which is which is fine. But to see what he's doing. Uh, even if this is just a sample of like three weeks here, we're talking about even less. Um, I, I don't, I don't want us to forget that, forget what he's doing right now because pitching, hitting, um, he's, 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 he does everything and he does it at an elite, elite level. And the angels tied for first place in the AL West as we enter play on Friday. So off to a decent start. It helps that the Astros are, are banged up and haven't played well to begin the season Mariners have been a little quiet to begin the year. Those things are going to change. It's going to be a tough division all year long. Uh, but I, I think this Angels team, I, I continue to give them a little bit of praise after years of shade because they have done a good job balancing out this roster. They are not nearly as thin on the roster as they've been in years past. And I think what's going to make or break them in the end is their ability to potentially add a little bit more on the pitching side. I still think this is a team that needs something else in the back end. We'll see... Between Otani, Patrick Sandoval, Reed Detmers, Tyler Anderson, who they brought in the free agency, they probably have four good starters there. I, I thought maybe Jose Suarez could, could emerge as their five, and maybe he still will. He's off to a bit of a rough start this year. And Griffin Canning is finally healthy again, but it would go a long way. If they could add one more high-quality starter and one more bullpen arm, I think they'd be in a really good place to possibly deliver on that potential maybe a few years late for, uh, for people like me that thought they could do this even a season ago right yeah i don't i don't mean to, to diminish at all what they're doing what they've, they've put together because it is a better team than it was a year ago they have some pretty exciting younger players as well as established players and and bounce back potential players as well um but you're right how much i mean how consider the incentive they have on the table we're trying to lure and woo our superstar to stay here in town uh, if we don't do something serious at the deadline or go get somebody earlier, right? If you have an injury or something, a hole in the rotation and you don't get somebody, what are you telling Shohei Otani in, in that lack of action? And so they are, they have as much incentive as you could possibly want, as much motivation as you could possibly ask for. Um, and, and it's up to them to show how serious they are about trying to keep him, not just money-wise, not just years-wise with him, but what they do around him because uh, this is your last chance to show Shohei. Like we are going to do everything we can to put a playoff team around you. So a few prospect-related matters. We've already seen the promotion of Francisco Alvarez. Now it seems like every time Brett Beatty hits a home run, I get a bunch of tweets telling me that he's playing really well at AAA and, and kind of some questions. Like, when's he going to be up? I thought there was a chance Beatty was going to open the year with the Mets. I, I really thought that was a possibility. Uh, it would likely come at the expense of Eduardo Escobar, but I think you can justify making Escobar uh, a part-time player. And I know that's something that uh, our friend Will Salmon has actually written about recently. It seems like the Mets are going to have to make a pretty quick early decision on how they want to handle playing time here. At the very least, bring Beatty up now and see if he's 
the solution that you wanted to be for this season because you're the Mets. You've got limitless funds. You can go out midseason and add as much as you want in terms of payroll. You could take on contracts other teams don't want to fill voids on the roster if you need to. And I think Beatty is one of those guys that really doesn't have anything left to prove in the minors and didn't necessarily have much to prove in the minors going into this season either. No, it's more what asset management, like we talk about, like they, they want to hold on to the guys they have and Beatty's optionable. And so they, and so they do it, but yeah, this is a guy who's major league ready and Eddie Escobar hasn't really done anything in the last year plus to show you that he belongs in that everyday corner infield spot. And so yeah, I don't think you need to have a long leash here on a guy who uh, has a you know 348 OPS right now and is batting 100. Uh, that's that's not someone who is uh, who is showing you that he deserves that everyday playing time. And so bring up Beatty; he has so much more ceiling right now. Uh, and you can find a role for Escobar if you if you want to. And um, I think they they do have that room. They're barely using like a LaCastro. So do you really need that guy on your bench, or or can you find room elsewhere? Um, or maybe move like a Guillaume or something. So I think they have, um, I, I can't imagine that they are actually going to continue waiting that long before bringing up Beatty. Um, and they may wait for an injury or something to open up a, a roster spot, but uh, but there really is no reason to be, be keeping him down. He's an impact Just, bat, right? And that's not something you can say about Escobar at this point. Right. And I think if Escobar is your first infielder off the bench, that is absolutely fine. You want to spot him, mix him and match him other spots around the infield occasionally, no problem. The money's not the issue. You don't have to play him because you gave him that contract. You can move on when the talent dictates that you should move on. Uh, the Twins brought up a prospect this week. Edward Julian is up for the Twins. Hit his first home run in the big leagues. Pretty interesting numbers last year at A. Really had a good slash line. It was a 300 441 490 line, huge OBP, a little bit of swing and miss given the age, the level. That's going to be something to keep an eye on here as he gets more exposure to big league pitching. But I keep looking at this Twins depth chart and it just looks better. It just looks different. It looks like there's young talent that's able to sort of fill in when injuries strike. And uh, I I see tons of positives. I, I don't know if I'm overcorrecting because they ended up getting Carlos Correa back. But I think it's more than that, Steven. I think this is actually a, a pretty dangerous team in the AL Central and one that uh, started to exercise some demons this week in the Bronx. Yeah, I, I really like Julian, uh, the pride of Quebec and Team Canada, who opened some eyes during the, the WBC. He's a, he, I mean, they, they lost their on-base king, uh, traded him to Miami, and he just has a casual, uh, Arias is casual, like 550 OBP uh, right now. But they also are, are pretty, they've been kind of a pretty right-handed lineup. And I think Julian uh, brings a little bit of balance to what they're doing, uh, especially with some of the injuries that they've had lately and, and, and Gallo and Kepler and, and all that. So I think uh, it's good for now. I don't know how much, um, I, I don't know like if that full strength where he fits in necessarily, but despite having a pretty extensive injured list collection, um, I do like what they have going on right now. And this team would look a lot different probably if you, had, you did, hadn't brought back Carlos Correa. So the thank you to the baseball gods and for everything for aligning to bring him back for, um, you know, however long he ends up being there. But the, speaking of club options there, but, um, but I, I, you know, I like where they're at and they're in a division here where it hasn't been maybe run away with uh, in the same way that for, almost from the word go last year, the the guardians just took off and so the guardians have had a little bit of a slower start still a fine team seven and six 
But Minnesota's gotten off to, I think, exactly the start they needed to. And they have I don't think they've been fluking their way there. I mean, this is a plus 24 run differential team and uh, hit the ground running with some good starting pitching, too. And that's something they've they've lacked, um, you know, significantly over the years. The thing I like a lot more about the Twins than the Guardians right now is that the Twins seem comfortable using their young talent. The Guardians seem like they're saving it for later. They're just clutching it for good, trying to save as much service time as possible. And maybe that'll change in the next few weeks. Maybe we'll see some of their young pitching. Maybe we'll see some of their young position players as well. I just, I'm losing the faith in that team being one that wants to push all of its young chips in in any particular way. They didn't want to go do it and make a trade for Juan Soto, for example. Maybe that was never really an option, but they had the talent to go do it. And they don't seem to want to just push guys into those prominent spots. Even Bo Naylor, Keith and I talked about that, I think maybe a week or two ago. Bo Naylor didn't make the opening day roster as someone sharing time with Mike Zanino even. Didn't have to be the starter right away. They just, they're ultra conservative right now with letting their young players come up and, and have opportunities. And I'm, I'm not sure I fully understand why. I do want to throw this at you. Because of the the new schedule, seeing teams in division less often, every single time I open up the app and I look for a game to watch, I feel like I'm seeing matchups I'm just not used to seeing. And I love it. I love seeing teams that there's interleague matchups. There's just everything. Everything looks different on the schedule in the best possible way. So I'm curious, as, as you look at the schedule for this weekend, are there any particular series that really... Uh, jump out for you where you're going to be I mean obviously you're going to a game in Boston but any other series you're interested in watching uh, throughout the weekend yeah I honestly I feel likewise we um we are working on something we'll we'll we'll, uh reveal later but basically some some series preview type stuff coming up and have been um doing a lot more of that series prep than I have in the past and I love it man it uh, it is something where I will, we get the kids to bed and I'll plop on the couch and turn on uh, MLB Big Inning on MLB TV. And it's like, this is great. I'm watching, um, I'm watching some early season matchups that I'm just not expecting. I'm seeing, uh, you know, the, the, the Brewers and Padres were playing. Uh, we saw this last week. What was it that jumped? Oh, the, the Astros and Pirates. I was like, sure. Why not? Let's talk about that. Former, <laughs> former division rivals. If we uh, look back a little ways. Um, but, uh, okay, let's look at this weekend. So suddenly the Pirates Cardinals is more interesting than I would have projected. Um, the Pirates are, are on a tear. We're, we're talking about maybe the first place Pirates in the next couple of days. Um, and then, uh, and then of course, uh, Angels Red Sox is one I talked about. And, uh, hey, let's get serious with the, the Rangers and the Astros. The Astros still floating under 500. They, uh, they've put themselves in a, in a rough position, but still have, you know, every every reason to believe they're going to be a great team, even if uh, Altuve is out for for a couple of months here. But um, but that's a that's a series I think where they can gain some ground. And if they don't gain ground, the Rangers maybe we have to start taking them seriously uh, as a team that's no longer stuck behind uh, you know at least two other teams in that division. I think they're still really good. I, the question I had going into the year was when you lose Verlander and you don't really replace them. You got Hunter Brown. You have a fantastic prospect joining the rotation. But that's not a fair expectation of Hunter Brown. It means other guys in the rotation all have to do more. You need that next level from Framber Valdez, or you need Christian Javier to do it for 175 or 180 innings, or maybe you need Luis Garcia to avoid his late season fade. Ultimately, you look at this core, it's still intact, even without El Tuve. A lineup that features Jordan Alvarez and Kyle Tucker and Alex Bregman and Jose Abreu and Jeremy Pena is a very good lineup. 
those are your five best hitters, you have a good team. I think the thing that continues to impress me with the Astros is the other guys, the Chaz McCormicks, uh, the Corey Jelks, the, the guys that just pop up and actually contribute. Like they have done so well filling in gaps, either with big time departures via free agency in recent years, with the Correa uh, and Springer departures, or even this El Tuve injury, which even though Mauricio Dubon and, and David Hensley aren't doing much. Like they're yeah. weathering this storm because they're getting more from other spots. They're getting more from the depth guys elsewhere on the roster. And I think that's just something that people have their, their perception of the Astros. And obviously, you know, some of that reputation is deserved, but they're also very good at putting together a team that is extremely competitive. And if you start to sleep on them early this season, I think you're going to be annoyed to see them in the picture again come October. Yeah, I, the way I read them early in the season is is let's say they get they come out and they get swept this weekend by the Rangers. That would tell me way more about the Rangers than it does about the Astros. I think the Astros, you look at that rotation, you still you still count on that rotation and you say we got Lance McCullers coming back later on. You look at that bullpen and say, "Oh, that's going to stand up." I don't think uh Ryan Stanek is going to be as as uh, volatile as he's been so far. I think I would count on Presley, Montero, Abreu, Neris any day of the week, Phil Maton as well. Uh, and then the lineup, they have they have reinforcements coming in the form of uh, Altuve later this season. And I think they're also a team that's positioned to, if they want to, go get somebody at the trade deadline. The Last year, we saw them go get Vasquez. We saw them go get uh, Mancini. I think they're a team that puts themselves in a position where, okay, do we have a hole that's pretty serious? Maybe Martin Maldonado is not uh, is going to continue to be a you know a buck 50 hitter, and we can't really stand that at the end of the season. Maybe we go get a catcher again. Uh, go get a rental here or there. I think they've positioned themselves in a way where they have a really, really strong core for the long term, uh, with the best, you know, arguably the best pitching staff, um, especially rotation in baseball, even without Verlander, uh, probably top three at least. Um, and uh, I think are in a position where they can add, uh, add throughout the course of the season, depending on what, where, what injuries come up or what spots end up being pretty weak. I think the uh, the series I'm most interested in this weekend actually is Brewers Padres, and it, yes, I, I'm still allowed to be a fan. I don't cover a team, so. <laughs> I have my Brewers fanhood. Uh, I think even for a neutral fan, I think that'd be a pretty high-priority series to watch. I think the way it would work for me is from the early games, the East Coast games, Rays Jays, from the night games, Brewers Padres, that series being in San Diego. That's sort of your your nightly viewing guide. Um, but I've also found that the Orioles continue to move up in yeah. the watchability rankings for me. They're a team I've gravitated toward a little bit more often this season. They've got the White Sox. I like the White Sox booth a lot, too. I think Jason Benetti and Steve Snow yeah. is one of the best combos on TV right now. So I think that's probably the third series that's going to be worked in a lot if I'm jumping around. You mentioned big inning, too. I think it's good that MLB has been doing this for a couple of seasons now. I think there could be more to it. I think they could add to it and, and make it a little more interactive. And, and ultimately, I feel like when they, they leave a host like solo on there, like that's just that's yeah. a hard being by yourself in media is very difficult to do. Even if you don't like the sports talking heads that, that go off for three hours every day, that's a hard thing to do. And to do it while going from game to game with Major League Baseball with huge rosters takes a ton of talent to do that. Uh, but I just like it from the perspective of getting eyes on a ton of players really quickly. It, it just helps you get some exposure to teams and players you ordinarily would not see, especially if you, you tend to be someone that watches full games when your favorite team is playing, it gives you a way to just sort of catch up on everything else. Yeah, I think we probably all have like a slightly unfair uh, expectation of beginning 
because we're so used to red zone and and like yeah. with the standard they've set. And so to match that in baseball is tough. We don't have quite the same tempo. I mean, not even close to the same tempo, even though we now have clocks. You don't have the same literal red zone that other teams have. You know, what scoring position, what are you going to call it? MLB scoring position. Come watch. Um, <laughs> and homers happen here and there. But yeah, you're, you're going to get, you're going to learn about a homer first on Twitter oftentimes. And that's kind of annoying, right? If you're on your phone at the same time. And um, so there there are things they could do better. Honestly, maybe it's worth doing a story talking to them about, but they're... Um, their approach there and where, where they go in the future, because I bet there are a lot of different things you could do with that. And uh, especially as we're, we're having so many conversations about RSNs and all that, and that, what, things are going to change so much in the next few years for the better for fans, I think. Uh, go check Evan Drellich's work, uh, Drellich's work on that. Um, that I think that's one area they can they can upgrade that product. And like you said, one part of that is, is giving a little bit of help, uh, not making it just one host, because it can be a little disjointed at times. Absolutely. But a uh, lot to look forward to this weekend. And uh, if you want to check out Evan's work and everything else we've got at The Athletic, you can do that at theathletic.com slash baseball show. Get a subscription for $1 a month for the first year. That is the cheapest price we offer on the subscription at any point since I've been here. So take advantage of that uh, if you'd like to get your foot in the door for the next year at a very, very low price. On Twitter, you can find Stephen at Stephen J. Nesbitt. That's a Stephen with a PH, Nesbitt with two T's, and just the middle initial J, not J-A-Y. So uh, good luck, everyone. That'd be I'm too long. That. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm at Derek Van Riper. Thanks for listening. The Athletic Baseball Show returns on Monday. Mm-hmm.